Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. This week, I chat with Paul Wood from Brisbane Backyard Bees, who we are collaborating with for our new Honeybeam project. Throughout the conversation, we talk about the critical importance of bees for human and planetary health, the main issues that are causing bee depopulation, the benefits of beekeeping for both bees and humans, as well as the amazing and mysterious inner workings of the beehive. As James just alluded to there, we do have a new project underway and we're stoked to be launching our honeybeams this week. They're bright honeybee yellow and have a cool new symbol on them. They come in 90 centimeter and 120 centimeter lengths and all of the profits from the sale of these beams will go towards Project B in partnership with Brisbane Backyard Bees. The money will be used to help build and maintain hives at our natural experience centre that's under construction west of Brisbane, TFC Bush One. To support the cause, head to tfc-shopaus.com to check them out. All right, so Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, so we just had a meeting. We're here in your, your beautiful backyard, actually, with a, I can see a bunch of bees buzzing around, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just had a meeting about our upcoming honeybeam project and figured it would be a great opportunity to just jump on the podcast and chat through all things bees um, and your approach with bees and what you do. Um, and yeah, it's just it's such a such an important subject. The more I learn about it from you and from other people uh, that I hear on podcasts and stuff, and the more it makes sense that it's it's really something that needs to be talked a lot more about. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually I just start with you know getting a bit of background about yourself, sort of what you do and why you do it, and then we can just roll from there. Cool. Okay. So yes, Paul Brisbane Backyard Bees. Um, it grew. So this is my little business in in Brisbane. I supply hives and bees, top bar hives, which are at the very natural end of beekeeping. Mm -hmm. The focus of a top bar hive is very much uh, about supporting the natural cycles of the bees. Um, So I I came into bees sort of almost accidentally about 10 years ago. I've always been into gardening, permaculture type stuff, but and I realised bees needed to be a part of our food system, uh, not intending to be a beekeeper necessarily, but I went on a, um, a workshop and stuck my head in a beehive and uh, my world changed. <laughs> I I, uh, I was very captivated by bees and I, and I uh, came home, built a hive, um, got bees into it and, um, and it grew from there. I started... Um, building extra hives forcing my friends to have them and uh, <laughs> and yes and and since then people come to me and I I supply their hives and bees uh and I support support their um learning as a new beekeeper and do workshops and a whole lot of peripheral things as well like I I take bees out of walls and ceilings mm. um suburban beekeeping means that because we don't have a lot of natural places for bees to inhabit in suburbia, they do tend to go into man-made structures a bit. So, so I also take bees out of those sorts of places. Yeah, mm. and that, that's where you get your bees. Hey, that you then rehouse, I suppose, rehome, um, yeah. rehive. That's one of the places I get bees. So yeah. yes, I, obviously, I'm I'm 
selling hives and bees to people, I need to get bees from somewhere. So there are three-ish ways that I get bees. Uh, one, as you've suggested, is getting them out of walls and ceilings. Um, that's a bit erratic, the mm. supply of bees. Yeah. I uh, have my own hives, of course, and I split those periodically. So when the hive is robust enough, I will split it to create a new colony. Uh, so that's another way that I um, can supply bees and uh, another very important way is swarming so springtime is when bees beehives naturally reproduce they're split in half the old queen leaves with half the workers they're set up well temporarily in their park in in a tree or on your garden furniture or or somewhere and people ring me and say I've got a swarm in in my backyard can you come and get it so that is another important source of my bees and I guess that's how they get into the houses hey like if they get into a roof or a a hole in a wall or something like that that's That's from a swarm yeah yeah. Yeah. typically uh, I I mean it's a a tricky dilemma here because when a hive swarms it's a beautiful thing we're actually discouraged by the department of agriculture to to have our hive swarm but swarming is a natural process of reproduction so ultimately there are things you can tweak to discourage swarming but you know hives will swarm a healthy hive will swarm and um uh so it's a little bit of a shame to interfere with this process because they will park in a tree for two or three days, sending out scouts mm. looking for that new home. And uh, we're asking people in suburbia, ring a beekeeper when you see a swarm. And we intervene in that quite beautiful process and yeah. take the bees out of that tree and say, no, no, you're not going into those walls or ceilings. Right. We're going to give you... a much more suitable home for suburbia um but yes if no one spots that swarm typically after two or three days they've identified a perfect little cavity in a house uh, and they move in there and then it becomes problematic trying to get them out we we can get them out but not everyone wants me to make a hole in their wall so yeah, yeah it's best if we pick up the swarm but yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and you mentioned that you got into bees through an interest in permaculture and you know, growing your own food and things like that. Talk to me why about why bees are. I mean, Mac and I did a, a workshop with you, so we do sort of have a bit of background information. But tell people mm-hmm. why the bees are so important for um, food systems. Sure. So, at some point in history, a relationship was created between flowers and insects and um, uh, insects realized they could get protein from pollen and the flower Mm. the flower world the plant world accommodated these insects by producing more polleny flowers flowers that produce pollen uh, and as an added incentive nectar so this relationship between bees and flowers has been going for millions of years and um, it is at the core of our food system currently it uh, um, when a bee at, um, when a bee collects pollen from a flower, that's the protein that it needs to take back to the hive. That pollen is the um, the reproductive cell of the plant. Right, it needs that pollen needs to get shifted mm. onto another flower in order for that flower to produce its fruit, and that fruit may be uh, a fruit that we're familiar with. You know. Um, 
oranges, lemons, cucumbers, whatever, or vegetable or nuts. And uh, so that process of the bees moving that pollen from flower to flower is essential. If that did not happen, that plant, that flower would not produce one of those fruits. Um, so yes, we, we've become very dependent upon bees for our food. And it is it is commonly agreed that probably 30% of the food we put into our bodies requires the services of a bee right that's not to that's not to take anything away from the other insects that are pollinators <laughs> yeah. there are many many pollinators insects ants flies wasps <coughs> uh, native bees as well as the honeybees it's just that the european honeybee is such a prolific pollinator it yeah is, uh, yeah and something that really hit home for me in the workshop was you were talking about how the pollination industry, I suppose, is actually even bigger than the honey industry. Is that is, is that right? Is in it's it's actually a huge thing, a huge industry of getting pollinators into areas where pollination is needed. Sure. Yeah. Well, when when we say bigger than the honey industry, there is more money in more pollination money. Yeah. than there is in honey, um, which is fascinating. It <laughs> is. It is. And so so ideally, so we we humans we do farming in a particular way and we can call that monoculture, basically the planting out of one enormous area of a single Mm. crop. Prior to that, the diversity of um, plants on all of our land meant that the bees could pick and choose between flowers here and there. They could live in many different habitats as long as there were there was a diversity of of plant life. The, The monoculture system has removed that diversity. So um typically uh, the, the example that most people often use is almonds the almonds of california mm. a million acres uh, acres of almonds in california um th- almonds must have a honeybee uh so so those almonds will not produce those almond trees will not produce a nut without a bee and because there are almond trees as far as the eye can see um there is no or the flower. And that mm. almond is going to flower for... That almond tree will flower for maybe six weeks of the year, at which time there is endless forage. There is f- almond flower everywhere. Um, but outside that window of opportunity for a pollinator, there is nothing. It is effectively a desert. Mm. So, um, so that's the typical example of how the pollination industry has been created. Because we, uh, we still need that pollinator, even though we have we've damaged the habitat to such a a degree that bees can't live in those monocultures we still have to bring bees in therefore we now so we create hives that are transportable that you can stack onto trucks that you can ship halfway around the world and drop them into these monocultures forage them on that single pollen the single protein for six weeks and then move them onto somewhere else so the farmer the the almond farmer pays a price for per hive for the services of um, mm. of those bees, and then another um, uh, they'd go on to another crop um, somewhere so that, else that yeah. has so a that, different flowering cycle. Yeah. yeah, so that has become the normal life of um, of so many bees. Mm. Yeah, and it, and like you said, pretty much well, not not ubiquitously, but the majority of 
farming or agriculture these days is monoculture agriculture and like you said that destroys the habitat of the bees because they can only survive on the the like if they're in a certain area and it was all one plant like almonds or or something Mm -hmm. then they would only be able to eat for six weeks of the year and then they'd have to i guess move somewhere else but that's right it just wouldn't be feasible yeah pollen is essential to bees all year round. It, yeah. is a, it is their protein. They feed it to the brood. They're producing <coughs> bees day after day after day. Uh, pollen is necessary for the brood. Yeah. So, yeah, without ca- pollen, you you don't have a beehive. Yes, yeah. And so the diversity, just having having more diversity, say in like a backyard setup like you've got or in, say, a regenerative agriculture farm where they have, you know, animals and uh, like diverse plant species and all of these things would probably be the ideal environment for a bee or would it be more i guess like a forest environment yeah so well depends so on the bees bee. travel honeybees will travel up to five kilometers to forage um so they've got pretty they've got a lot of scope right so yeah they, they, uh, and in suburbia within five kilometers of my backyard mm, even though my backyard's yeah, full yeah, yeah. of full of plants they're not. They're not tied. The, the boundary means course, nothing to bees. Course, they yeah. will travel across suburbia, and they will find what's flowering. I mean, their their navigation skills are fantastic. They will find the forage if it's out there. They will get it. Um, in in uh, in our rural systems, I mean, it has to be said too that there are people that are recognizing the value of pollinators, uh, not only honeybees and and. And now also the the value of um, having a diversity of crops too. So they'll actually grow rows of um, insect attracting plants between their trees mm. and stuff like this. It's a slow process, but but that system. There are people who are recognizing that our agricultural systems do need to start bringing in a bit more diversity mm, so mm. um but yet yeah, to answer your question i mean suburbia is fantastic brisbane is bee heaven right it is and pretty much year round because our winters are quite mild uh so we don't we don't get that sort of dormant period that they would in europe so much they slow down in winter um but also um you know bees out in a rainforest um or, or any forest generally the uh, you know the the laws of nature are such that something is flowering most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, there are exceptions, of course, to <laughs> serious droughts, but uh, yeah, there is forage everywhere if we let it grow. Yeah. Mm. And so, do you think, because I guess, like you said, it, suburbia is good, like bees can survive really well in suburbia because um, they just go and find the plants that are flowering um, within that five kilometer radius. Do you think, at the same time, is there a, like a lack of bees? Is there a need for more people in suburbia, or is there benefit to the to suburbia? I suppose from people having more bees, or more people having bees, maybe. Mm, sure. So, if we accept that bees are responsible for so much of our food, we can also probably accept that so many people who you know. Um, are, are much more interested in their own health, in the quality of their food, and are consequently growing their own food. We've uh, our, and and people are also trying to reduce their food miles. They're sort of bringing food closer to home. Um, it makes sense then if we're going to try and 
put fruit and veggie gardens into suburbia, we need to have bees to pollinate those gardens. Yeah. Um, so... I, could we have too many bees? Maybe, I suppose. But uh, we haven't got there yet. Yeah. And it also <clears throat> needs to be acknowledged that, you know, Australia has 2,000 species of native bee. Mm. They are not quite as prolific in terms of their pollination services, but but they are here. They're pollinating and they are valuable to our ecosystem as well. So, mm. um, yeah, so suburban beekeeping is... Uh, and And people are getting embracing that quite enthusiastically but it is um uh, it's essential if we want to produce food yeah. and it's yeah. it's far better to be picking an apple from your tree than walking through the doors of the supermarkets to buy one yeah absolutely so yeah. There'd, there'd be a benefit to in general people growing their own food which i think is really important for like just the sustainability of our culture, more, more people growing their own food and, and also just for, for your own health is getting in touch with nature as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like you said, the more people are growing their own food, then the less, I guess, demand there is for those monoculture produced products, which means, you know, if there was enough of that kind of shift, then there would be less habitat destruction of like natural habitat destruction that's from right. bees as yeah, well. That's right. Yeah, the the, um, the ripple effect is enormous. That's mm. right. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people, you know, you put a hive in your backyard, it's not really your hive. Those <laughs> yeah. bees are out there in suburbia. <laughs> They're contributing to the yield of fruit and vegetables from people's gardens. They are uh, and consequently sort of reducing the number of people that are dependent upon fruit and vegetables from the supermarkets. It is a, yeah that hive in in that garden. I mean, not only is it a pot of gold in terms of the <laughs> fact that it just sucks in enormous amounts of honey, <laughs> but it is out there supporting the planet. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So and consequently our health. I mean that that's one of the things that occurred to me about you guys and why this is quite appropriate um, to have this relationship with you with you guys doing the stuff that you do with the Foot Collective. Uh, you know, you're into the health of the human body, which which essentially you know it also means what we put into our bodies. Mm. It means the health of the planet, and bees are essentially the health of the planet. You know, there's there is this is a much bigger thing than just let's keep bees. You know, it, yeah. There's a there's a there's a lot of stuff going on. It's about human health, insect health, planet health. So yeah, that's nice. It is nice, yeah, and and that's that's exactly right. Like kind of wherever you start from um like we start at feet because feet are such a uh, misunderstood and mistreated body part in general in society um but you know if you look at foot health then you can't separate that from whole body health because the rest of your body will affect your feet and vice versa mm-hmm. um and then obviously you can't separate your whole body health from planetary health your environmental health and so Wherever you start from, well, you could start from bees and go, okay, what, what's messing up the bees? Okay, monoculture, agriculture, and what seems to be messing up our health? Well, foods that are from monoculture mm-hmm. um, farms. And, and so, yeah, there is really no separation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that it, mm. it all ties in really well together. And I, I think another big thing about our message is just trying to return to and connect with as much as possible, connect with nature uh, as much as possible and and building a relationship with your own food um, and, and animals in your environment uh, 
makes a lot of sense for returning to that connection with nature. And mm-hmm. I'm interested what your thoughts on, like, I, I know vegan, like vegans, for instance, don't eat honey in general and they mm. are in general against what they see as like the, the servitude of animals for human benefit and mm. so on. And so is there an argument out there that it's like, oh, you should, we should just leave the bees alone and not keep them or like, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that keeping bees makes sense and, and based on everything we've just talked yeah. about, like, have you, have you come in, have you run into that at all or, um, sure. Like, uh, yeah. I guess the difference between, you know, um, you know, just being a human who's just trying to take from the bees versus being a steward for the bees and, and, you know, helping their survival or helping their success. Mm. Yes. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, there are swings and roundabouts and, yeah. and the world moves every day in, in many directions. And if we look at Australia, Australia didn't have European honeybees 200 years ago. Mm. They're here mm. now. Because we're here, we demand food. Uh, they've they've been sort of shoehorned into our way of living. And yeah, you could argue, well, that's not the bees never chose to be here. Uh, they don't cho- choose to be in man-made hives. Um, but we're here. We've found ourselves in this environment where you know we're not hunter-gatherers anymore we're farmers we for better or worse uh and bees have been caught up in that system mm. uh yeah look i think it's good to have a to at least have a the, the visibility of a purist system whatever that may be but we have to work within what what we've got yeah and uh so european honeybees <clears throat> are in australia as are we and um and we we keep bees in hives, um, and you could argue that well, if we didn't keep bees in hives, we're not we're not planting enough trees, or at least we we're not leaving enough hollow trees standing for even the Australian fauna mm. and birds and stuff. So it, it it we really do need to have hives. So, yeah. um, but taking that one step further. You could argue, well, okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna corral bees into our man-made uh, structures, then how can we produce a man-made structure that is at least accommodating their simple needs? Yes, um, I wanted so, to talk about that actually. This is, mm, that's where the top bar hive comes in. Hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so um, we have we do bee farming very well in terms of we can pump out honey, we can pump out pollinating bees through the beekeeping industry um, using a hive called the Langstroth hive. That's the square box that most people are familiar with. It's got frames and wires and all fancy gadgetry <laughs> inside. It works very well in terms of honey production and you know being able to stack, stack it onto yeah. trucks and ship it around the world. Um, and um, we're probably not going to change that. And uh, But the the purist in me says okay well you let's accept that that is going on much as we'd like to sort of improve the pollinate pollination industry and and lots of other things um but so, so my thing is basically using a hive called the top bar hive which is about as close as you can get to 
a hollow log. Mm. So it's basically just, it is a hive, a box with no infrastructure. There's no frames, no wires. We are allowing the bees to um, build the comb of their own design because they will build different size cells in different configurations. Um, so we, uh, first and foremost, the top bar hive is about producing, uh, about um, providing an environment that bees will accept that's pretty close to their um, normal environment. Mm. Whilst at the same time, we also accept that we have a department of agriculture that manages bee health and tries to stop nasty diseases coming from the rest of the world into Australia. And as beekeepers, we need to comply with those rules. So, uh, so we have certain um, features in the top bar hive that accommodate those compliance requirements as well. So, so yeah, it would be a great world to have bees everywhere just <laughs> naturally doing their thing. Yeah. Uh, but we currently have a system which um, we can navigate our way around. And it is my choice to, to be at that very natural end of beekeeping where bees are supported and um, primarily and uh, secondly they are there to you know they also produce honey and uh, provide pollination mm. but i don't i don't actually chuck mine on trucks and ship them around I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah no absolutely and that makes a lot of sense um because really the alternative is like yeah we, in an ideal world maybe um well, yeah, back back when we were hunter-gatherers, then there was no agriculture, then there was just endless homes for bees and plenty of habitat and, you know, everything was going along swimmingly. Like, mm -hmm. um, but obviously, yeah, we're, like you said, we're farmers now and we do have suburbia. And really, the only, the, other, the only other option besides people like you taking this on and, and helping guide other people to do this in their own way in their own backyards... Um, is if someone has a bee colony swarm into their wall is just to get uh, like a um, pest pest control really and to kill the bees right because if they don't get relocated then do they just what happens if they don't get relocated yeah well I mean that is that is one of the um, unhappy outcomes of bees mm. bees choosing to live in people's walls yes if I can't convince them that uh, I can take them out gently and nicely but they don't want me to make a hole in the wall then then uh, um, then yes bees do get killed yeah, yeah. so that, there's, that it makes a lot of sense then it's like well we need we absolutely need bee populations for mm. a, like a lot of different reasons mm. I mean you could uh, argue we, we want we need tree populations to start off with yeah <laughs> we need to stop cutting down yeah, trees that's true. and grow more yeah and not only that but um, let the dead ones stand because that the beauty of a that, dead tree is that enormous hollow cavity that uh, that can host birds, bees, mm. and in fact, I, w I was called to um, um, a place in Saint Lucia some time ago, and a, a tree lopper by a tree lopper, and he was cutting down a tree. I found three native beehives and one European honey beehive in, in the same tree. Wow. It is, yeah, that habitat is there. We just, <laughs> you just, yeah. we just get rid of it yeah. too soon. So let's keep, let's have our man-made hives, but also let's, you know, maybe not be so brutal with our natural habitat. Yeah, yeah. Even a dead tree, you just think, oh, it's just a dead tree. We'll get rid of it. But a dead tree is not 
truly dead. It's nope, still alive it is and full part of, of the cycle of life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, well, we we go through it a fair bit in the workshop, but I wonder if you can give us like a, I guess, a brief synopsis of bee, like the social life of bees, or just like how how the bees work as an organism, because obviously there's sure. there's the single individual bee, but then they're really a, a, a small part, like a cell of the, the greater organism, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good thing to recognise too, that yeah, every bee is selflessly devoted to the uh, well-being of that colony. Um, so getting back to basics, the, um, a colony of bees, which typically might be you know 80,000 bees, optimally, um, there are workers, mm-hmm. And the workers will make up sort of between 85 to 99% of the population of the bees. Then there are drones. And drones are more plentiful in springtime. They're the males. Uh, So they sort of fluctuate between 0 and maybe 15%. And then there's one queen. Mostly one queen. There are exceptions, but we won't complicate the matters today. So, So if we take those three types of bees, workers, the girls, drones, the boys and the queen um the workers are the ones that are doing all the work so they are they they um a worker bee is born in the hive uh or at least rather she she starts life as an egg the queen lays an egg in a cell in the hive that egg remains for three days then hatches out and becomes a little white larva that larva gets fed and fed um um, a substance called bee bread, mixture of uh, pollen and water fermented with a little bit of honey. Um, that larva grows for six days and then the cell gets capped and that capped cell, or the pupa in that capped cell, grows, continues to grow for another 12 days. So a total of 21 days, that egg becomes a worker bee. That worker bee emerges from her cell, she gets to work. So she uh, she cleans out her own cell and she, she may operate as a cleaner in her own hive. She will feed um, brood. She'll feed the drones. She may feed the queen. She produces wax flakes from her abdomen, um, which then become that fantastic honey comb that they construct, though, that's mm. hexagonal cell- cellular stuff out of. F- fantastic to see. Um <laughs> And uh, she's maybe a heater bee, a guard bee, a housekeeper throwing out the dead bees. So she works endlessly for about two weeks. And, um, and then she becomes a forager. In other words, she leaves the hive several times a day, maybe up to 20 times a day, to collect nectar, pollen, sometimes water. And, um, and she might visit, um, you know, 100 flowers in one trip providing those pollination services between flowers, collecting pollen or nectar, bringing it back to the hive. Um, if, it, if she's got nectar, she carries that in her honey gut uh, and, and shares it with another worker bee in the hive and they're partially digested again and again. And there's a process that goes on with this nectar which reduces the moisture content and that nectar becomes honey. Um, for use within the hive or they may store it for future use uh, they pack it into cells as honey so the, the, so that worker bee um, does that for about four weeks until she dies of exhaustion um, her wings will break down to, mm. maybe one day she just doesn't 
find her way back to the hive. Her life is done. So two weeks as a nurse bee in the hive, four weeks as a forager. And just to give you some context around that, the um, if you imagine a teaspoon of honey that you might put on your toast in the morning, that teaspoon of honey has required the whole lives of 12 worker bees yeah, that, to produce that, that little teaspoon. It's so, a crazy, yeah, crazy fun fact. Yeah, hey? and yeah. Yeah, so just everyone remember that. <laughs> Every time you eat honey, yeah. it, if it's just a teaspoon, yeah, think it, of the 12 worker bees. Yeah. It is, that is incredible. It is. It's like gold. They're real, yeah. 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 So that's the worker bee yeah. in a nutshell. Then there's the drone. So the drone, he's the boy. He exists for genetic diversity. His job is to mate with the queen from a different hive. So he leaves the hive... Um, each day and he goes up to something called the drone congregation area which is an area about 30-40 metres above ground there are several designated areas all around suburbia he will go to one of those in the hope that he meets a queen and uh, he will mate with that queen she will rip his insides out (laughs) because that's how it's done, and uh, and that's the end of his life. He has he has done his service. Um, if he doesn't mate with the queen, he will go again the next day. So that is his job, um, and it's a it's a it's an important job. Um, and then there's the queen. So she and she has an exceptional sort of lifespan. She can live for four to six years, um, and um, so she starts her life. In the hive, she might um, she might spend a few days getting to know her new family when she's uh, just after she's born, and then she knows she has to go out and mate. She's got to go up to that drone congregation mm. area, find some drones. She will mate with a ma- with about a dozen different drones from very a variety of hives. A whole world of genetic diversity going on there rip out all their insides yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, and then come comes back to the hive and she will start to lay eggs egg after egg after egg after egg and she can lay up to 2000 eggs in one day which is more than her own body weight isn't that isn't that insane yeah it still yeah. doesn't quite compute, but I guess it's because no. she's just constantly producing. Yeah. yeah, she's just constantly producing. Yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, she's <laughs> feeding. She is a machine. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, and they they use the honey as like she the queen would be eating honey as her fuel yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that yeah, honey and is they the eat fuel pol- for the so hive. pollen and honey. Well, what do they do? What well, do they do pollen, with the pollen, again? pollen is mostly used for feeding the brood. Feeding the brood, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. so when you accept that uh, the life of a worker bee is only six weeks, they've got to be pumping out new bees day after day after day. Yeah. So it's an it's a, an essential um, activity to for that um, brood to be pumping out bees twenty four hours a day yeah. every day, um, and so the pollen is that's the main use of the pollen is to um, serve the the brood yeah mm. yep 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 and then the rest of them eat honey basically yeah honey is yeah so honey is their fuel for traveling yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and warming heating and yeah honey is yeah their daily fuel yeah, yeah. the the and it's it's just fascinating how i think we well we were talking about it the other day how there is yeah there's all these individual bees but they have this greater shared intelligence that they even 
like I mean obviously they have their own ways of communication but it just seems like this seamless single organism that then also splits into two with the swarm mm-hmm. like you were talking about so it's like these it's like this bigger cell made up of a lot of tiny cells and then that cell can split it's just yeah it is fascinating how those dynamics work yeah yeah a colony of bees doesn't work it doesn't sort of stick to the you know we think we've got a brain we do things with that brain we make decisions a colony of bees uh, or at least a bee itself they don't seem to stick with the rules the rules (laughs) that we understand in other words that bee has a job she knows she's got a job and she does that in service of the hive but uh, yes as you said there there is a mind mm. that appears to um make decisions a mind a hive mind in other words it, yeah that that colony makes decisions now i don't <laughs> think, i don't think we really understand how that works but we can observe it it is unbelievable and um uh and I think it's also, I mean, some people are inclined to think, oh, the queen's the boss. She's never the boss. She's the servant right. of that mind. Yeah. And, uh, so there is no boss, really? No, no, not at all. It's all no, just this a constant... Is, this is a complete collaboration. And, and you're right. I mean, an example of this is the swarming process. So typically, as we touched on before, swarming is reproduction of a colony of bees. Mm. It's when the queen and half the workers leave to set up a new home and um, there's a bit of a process because obviously uh, new queens are produced so the old queen actually produces new queens to take over when she's gone Um, but um, somehow there is a process by which uh, there is a bunch of workers that decide they're the ones that, that are going to go with the queen they suck up so much honey to survive out in the in the wilderness for two or three days <laughs> while they find their new home and and just watching a swarm go is uh, you know you there is there is a a process at work that we that doesn't fit into the constraints of how we understand the human brain yeah uh, i mean certainly they do they know they have to have the queen without the queen they're lost yeah so they do you know if the queen gets tired and she falls on the ground they go on the ground. <laughs> so they will, they know that the queen is essential to their well-being. But she's not a decision maker as such. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, I like the, you know, we've studied bees a lot. We've studied the, you know, the waggle dancing and the, all the ways, ways that they navigate. But I like the fact that so much is so mysterious. Yeah, it still seems like <laughs> quite a mystery. And even if you understand those little things... Yeah, like the waggle dance is interesting. Basically, where the do you want to s- describe the waggle dance for people? Yeah, so the waggle dance is is um, uh, an activity that a worker bee will engage in. If a worker bee's gone out and found some particularly fantastic forage, lots of pollen, beautiful nectar, whatever it is, she comes back to the hive, and uh, she will perform this figure of eight dance, surrounded by a whole bunch of worker bees. Um, who are observing in some way her dance and she is communicating to these worker bees the location of the forage that she found. It might be three k's away, it might be four k's away, it might be in a northeasterly direction. That, that All of that is communicated so that a worker bee, getting that message from the waggle dancing worker, will go out and find that forage without 
too much trouble at all. So yeah, it's, the waggle dance itself is pretty spectacular. That is so impressive. And yeah, so it's like all these little things, which I'm sure there's a lot more of the like examples of that, of how they communicate with each other. There's all these things that we understand and there's bound to be probably infinite ways that we don't understand still. Mm. Um, but it is so fascinating to to even to understand a few of these things, a few of these behaviors and the way they communicate and the way the hive works really transforms like with your hives you've got um like the flaps so you can see into them basically through the perspex or glass mm-hmm. um and obviously it's a it's a lid that you can lift up as well and mm-hmm. so you can observe some stuff going on there but it transforms from just this sort of random chaotic like buzz of activity into mm-hmm. now you're actually watching and seeing Mm. what some of these bees are doing like i remember the other day in the workshop uh, it was a few months ago now but the you were talking about how in winter as as the climate gets colder then they'll the bees need less and less space in their Mm. hive Mm. and they also need to have less or therefore less and less bees Um, Mm. and so the drones are pretty expendable because they're not doing any of the work they're just there to reproduce so in winter the worker bees start kicking out the drones yep. <laughs> and then straight away we went off to a hive to you know to do some practical application and then i'm like looking at these bees i'm like oh that's a that's a worker kicking out a drone yes <laughs> and so you start to see otherwise i would have just been looking at this buzz yeah. of activity so yeah. it's a pretty fascinating thing to observe it is and it does take uh, i and uh, just remembering my f- First, the first time I stuck my head in a beehive at a workshop, and it is pretty overwhelming. You can, you yeah. know, it's just bees, right? You, and but yes, it with a bit of sort of, and I teach people to be observers. You know, we're in so much that we do, we try to interfere. This is wrong. This is wrong. Let's fix this. Bees generally know what they're doing, mm. so I always tell people trust the bees. And the more you just take the time to observe, you'll start to get what they're doing and you'll watch their movements and uh, and some things you will not understand and you'll think why on earth is that be doing <laughs> but the, you don't have to the, understand the it beauty all. of <laughs> just being the observer yeah yeah so uh yeah but you do as you become more accustomed yeah you you start to recognize the cycles because they're very deliberate they're not just you know they they have a plan and it's mm. and and they're also checking out what's what's out there you know they're driven by what's in the the environment around them if there's nectar and pollen they will behave accordingly they'll find it it will drive whatever happens in the hive it'll drive the well-being of the hive if there's a drought they will respond accordingly the queen will slow down mm-hmm. laying eggs it is yeah so you can observe not only how the colony works but how the colony is ha- building a relationship with its environment yeah it is yeah it is quite fantastic to, 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 and you never, and I think it's also good to think that you know nothing. Yeah. You know, just because it's, that's a good way to approach a hive of bees because they can always surprise you. Yeah, just yeah. observe and learn. Yeah. yeah. And obviously a, a lot of bee, beekeeping or, and a lot of maybe potential beekeepers would be thinking about the honey, um, you know, the, the the results of getting honey, basically. And mm-hmm. I will say that your honey is 
probably the best honey I've ever had. Um, I don't know why, whether the whether the alderly sort of flowers are particularly good, but um, or maybe with the with the top bar method being a more natural method. I don't know how much mm. how much difference that makes to the honey, but yours is delicious, basically. Thank you. And and you've always got plenty of stores of it. Um, so. Again, I guess some there might be some people that would say, "Oh, we should just leave all the honey for the bees." How do, how do you know like how much to take versus how much to leave? Obviously, you don't want to, mm. you know, um, sort of hinder their ability to mm. to feed themselves. So, yes, what's the, what's so, the process there? And, yeah, as as a purist, you would say, "Well, let, let's just have a hive and leave them alone." Um, just on your point, though, about the the uh, honey yeah i mean so the so in a top bar hive the honey is not put in a centrifugal spinning thing like the commercial mm. framed model uh, we basically just cut the cut the comb off and we um uh, we just run it through a simple strainer yeah. so it's it it's a, it gently flows out it doesn't get sort of aerated it just it just flows out straight into a jar and i think that you know the the beauty and slowness of that is sort of I don't know. Yeah, it, it supports the integrity of the honey. Yeah, um, but it it is also true that when we are when we harvest from a top bar hive, we are actually harvesting the whole comb. The commercial model is is geared towards reusing that comb, tipping spinning the honey out of it and mm. putting the old comb back because it's not so, actual comb is it's not actual bees wax that well comb. it is beeswax oh, but they have it's a been frame. extruded from a, a sheet yes. of foundation yeah. which is sometimes plastic and sometimes wax right yeah um yeah but um but what i was leading to was uh if honey is your priority then this may be important to you because in a top bar hive you might get about 20 percent less honey out of a top mm. bar hive because we're we're harvesting wax at the same time, mm. but it does mean you get a lot of wax. And bees need to produce wax; they have to, they they do have to produce wax. They do have to produce corn. So that is that is something that people might be interested to to be aware of. Now, um, getting back to your other question about um, should we just have a hive and not harvest honey? This is a tricky thing, or just or I guess. How do you know how much to take? Oh yeah. yeah, well that's and that's also part of the thing. So, yeah. so going back to a, a point we raised before, these are European honeybees in Australia. Yes, European honeybees are planning for a European winter, <laughs> which could be you know minus ten degrees for three months or whatever. In in Europe, they they're basically shut down. Uh, the hive just is in survival mode. In Brisbane. They keep foraging all winter. There's something flowering all the time. So, and bees will mm. always pull in honey. They will not stop just because they think this is enough. Yeah, they, they don't. Yeah. They don't think like that. <laughs> so, um, if if you let them um, bring in uh, all of that honey, it, uh, they will become honey bound. Mm. Uh, they and and they will sort of do themselves out of space to make brood. right so they'll just keep making yeah. comb and putting yeah. honey in it and then yeah. yeah so the brood is where the uh where all the all the baby bees are produced they shrink that brood coming into winter because they they just want to tick over gently in a, mm. even in a brisbane winter they slow down um but they will still suck in honey and and pack that honey around them come springtime they will run out of space very quickly if 
they're sort of locked in by that yeah. honey. So, um, and and additionally, it is a it, you are required to take the honey out of the hive. It, it, I mean, it, it, a hive becomes unmanageable if you leave it with honey in, and the Department of Agriculture requires that you that you take comply some. with certain um, management rules, and uh, yeah, and and in typically in Brisbane, this is there are always exceptions, but um, they they suck in far more honey than they could use. Yeah. So yeah. coming to your other question, how much can you take? It is, it's a, it, again, it's about knowing what you're looking at in the hive, and yeah, uh, yeah you can, it's pretty clear fairly quickly that you know a full bar with a couple of kilos of honey on they can easily spare it because they are bringing in honey at mm. high speed mm. they can bring in enormous amounts of honey very quickly um if it's out there in the trees so yeah. so yeah. yeah it's about working with the environment yeah um or at least letting the bees work with the environment and you work with yeah. the bees yeah you help support the bees it's a it's a give and take relationship mm. you help support them by i guess taking care of their environment and making sure that they're They've got enough space to build if it's mm-hmm. hot and if they've got, you know, a, a smaller, warmer space if it's cold out. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, trusting the bees that they know what they're doing to a degree, but also just managing it so that it, it helps support them best. Because yeah. if, you, if you have the, I feel like if you have the mindset or the intention of like, I want to support this bee colony, not, oh, I want to just get as much honey as I can, mm-hmm. then... You know, it's it's that give and take, and you can have a, have some honey, mm. and yeah, and and uh, I imagine you know enjoy it and savor it all the more because you know what's going into That's the creation of that right. honey, rather yeah. than just sort of yeah. And that is typically um, the people that come to me for a beehive, and and very often they come to me and say, "Can I have a beehive? I don't really want the honey, but what, what am I going to do with all that? So <laughs> right? I just want to keep bees. I, I want." To them to support my vegetable gardens and stuff like yeah. that. So, so typically the the people that lean towards a top bar hive are people who are primarily interested in uh, bee health, food production, um, and and having an experience teaching the kids. Uh, yeah, having an intimate experience with bees. Yeah, and I mean they'll still get eighty kilos of honey in a year, which you know is. <laughs> Which is great. It's, it's a great more gift. Than enough for most people. <laughs> like if you if you've got too much yourself, then if you give someone a jar of honey, then it's a pretty special little gift, especially if you if you yeah. um, sort of grew it yourself, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. That's it's cool that the people you attract are more of those types of people that are just fascinated and and passionate about bees and bee health and and everything that all the implications of that. Mm. Um, and that's certainly what we're about. Like, obviously, I, I'm a big fan of honey, and especially the honey mm-hmm. that seems to come out of your hives. Um, but, you know, we, we this sort of leads us to the Honeybeam Project, which was actually started by Nick, for anyone listening who's not aware, but um, Nick from Canada, the Canadian um, division, uh, is getting a, a Honeybeam Project where basically all the profits from these honey beams that are sold which are basically yellow beams with a with a honey logo um but all those profits will go towards setting up and maintaining a beehive and promoting bee awareness and so 
you know, we connected with you and we thought, well, we could do the exact same thing. Um, and that's pretty much what we're going to do is build a top bar hive with you. Mm-hmm. We're, we're launching the Honeybeams this week, hence the podcast. Um, and we'll put all those proceeds to materials for building and um, the suits that you need and the honey extracting and, and um, just workshops with you to help expand our um, our own awareness and then obviously be able to help us spread the word more. Um, so we really appreciate you collaborating with us like that because um, we need someone to guide us. Otherwise, we'd just be... <laughs> yeah, of course. I don't no, know what great. we do. I, I love it. Yeah. If, um, if I can uh, be associated with such a, a good organization as yours too, which is into, you know, yeah, body health and planetary health... Um, and if the bees benefit as well, that's a fantastic bonus as well. Yeah, it's a, a yeah. win-win. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we'll we'll set up a a high, at least a hive or two out at the out at Bush One, which is our sort of version of of Forest One, basically our, our nature campus that we're building out there. And um, we also want to start growing some veggies and stuff out there too. So I'm sure it'll it'll help with the pollination. I haven't really mm-hmm. now that I think about it, I don't think I've really seen many bees out there. But I'm sure they're out there. Maybe just the smaller native bees that I haven't really noticed, mm. but. I guess in those areas there wouldn't be as many European honeybees. Possibly not. Yeah. No. But, you know, it, it, I'm always surprised because I look into trees all the time, especially flowering trees. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I look at bees in trees and I think, wow, where's that hive? You know, yeah. Where's, where's, right. Where are you coming from? <laughs> I may just not be looking hard enough. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure in, in Jenny's, my auntie has a garden out there. I'm sure if I went there there'd be bees buzzing around. Mm. But um, we'll just we'll introduce some more. Um, Great. Out of interest, um, have you noticed that your like the things that you grow in your garden grow have been growing better since introducing beehives into your backyard? I know they're not sort of only restricted to your mm. backyard, but have you noticed a difference in your garden? Yeah, I'd sometimes when a tree is in flower, you, you can be walking in the garden and, and you just hear the tree buzzing. Yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah. It may not necessarily be a fruit or vegetable tree. Yeah. I do have fruit okay. trees here, but uh, unfortunately I share most of that fruit with the with the other animals. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> the possums and uh, stuff. But, um, yeah, I, and the reality is, uh, and people do come to me and say, oh, I haven't got much in my garden. I said that the bees don't care. The, you know, your fences are no boundary for those bees. They will travel five kilometres. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I, I have taken... Uh, last uh, last season, I did deliver a hive out to quite agricultural land up north, and it was actually you had to crane your neck to see a tree. And I thought, oh, oh no. how are they going to go here? <sighs> and it was windy, and I thought, oh, you poor bees, what, where am I bringing you? <laughs> and uh, they're doing fantastically. Ah, so yeah, they find it. They f- they figure it out. They find stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's not always. In your garden. Yeah. yeah. So you, people, you know, if you get bees in your backyard, you may not necessarily see a significant increase in your own, I guess, yield. I think you would. You, okay. Yeah. 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 You know, if you've got a, a good, healthy citrus tree, uh, you'd start to. You add a hive to your backyard, I'm sure you would. You know. Yeah. Okay. I figured I there'd be something. I haven't studied it. I haven't, I haven't got a good enough citrus tree oh, to measure right, it. Yeah. But I do have a hive down the street here. Uh, 
and um, and there are citrus trees in his garden. And he said, yeah, since the bees have been in there. And he actually copied one of my hives as well. So he's got two hives, yeah, my okay. hive and his hive in the same garden. And he said, yeah, that since the bees have been here, it gets way more citrus on his trees than uh, yeah used to. right okay yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i figured and and also so there's that aspect and also then it's just the concept of contributing to the 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 overall picture of bee populations and bee health um around the place so that more like yeah so it's not just about your backyard but it would help your backyard mm, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah everyone wins yeah 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 and then this box this box that you don't have to feed, you don't have to do anything to. I mean, you do, you've got to do yeah, a inspections bit of and things. It just sucks in enormous amounts of honey. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Hey? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's mind blowing when you open a hive and you think, wow, where did you find the time to do all that? <laughs> yeah, it just sort of does its does its thing, and you yeah. open it, and oh, there's honey there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. incredible. I'm really, really looking forward to the process, and and. Um, I'm sure we'll be able to plant some citrus trees out of, out of bush one as well. So we'll, mm. we'll just get a bunch of planting done um, and get a couple of hives going and we'll, we'll document the process and um, we'll probably maybe in six months or a year or so we can do another podcast and maybe dive a bit deeper into, into bee, the, the inner workings of the beehive and, um, or anything else that we learn throughout the process. And mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. Great. Excited. Yeah, that's good. I'm, and I'm very pleased to be supporting your cause and, uh, yeah, looking forward to hanging out a bit. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thanks again for chatting and um, Thank thanks, you. everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next week. Cheers.